Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Saturday, April the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. To what extent can political beliefs and behaviour be understood through the science of psychology and the study of human cognition? And to what extent do political actors and political movements exploit that understanding when they try to get us to feel or to vote in a certain way on a certain subject? For the last year, British political columnist Raphael Baer has been exploring exactly these themes in his Politics on the Couch podcast, which looks at the way that our minds respond to politics and the way politicians can mess with our minds. In each episode, he talks to experts from the worlds of politics and psychology and philosophy to discuss how psychology drives everyone's political thoughts and their behaviour. Raphael, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm a big fan of Politics on the Couch. Maybe, first of all, you could just tell us how it came about and what your intention was in launching it. Uh, Yeah, well, it really started... There were two strands to it, really. The first was uh, that for a long time... I, in conversations with a a friend who uh, was actually a TV producer but wanted to get into podcasting as well, had really noticed that our discussions about politics were drifting further and further away from the ideas of practical policy, what would work, what might be implemented, uh, and more into this area of, of psychoanalysis, essentially, of the electorate. And I think a large driver of that was... Um, me writing about Brexit from inside the UK and the sort of implacable nature of this conflict between what had become two culture war tribes and the way in which the the, the sort of primal question of whether or not the UK should be a member of the European Union or not had become entirely secondary to all sorts of other emotional, cognitive, psychological processes that seemed to be defining what was going on in the House of Commons and in the wider political sphere, much more than what we used to think of as as politics. And then the second dimension to that was uh, at the very beginning uh, of last year, 2020, uh, I had a rather nasty heart attack, actually, and was very ill and really dropped out of politics and political commentary for a period to recover and then came back to it with a slightly more I would say sort of philosophical approach which is that having allowed myself to get very stressed and worked up by the whole process I realized that for the sake of my own physical and mental well-being I needed to I wanted to carry on writing about politics and thinking about politics but I wanted to do it with a bit of distance and so those two things came together and the podcast was born. So, so that's very interesting, those two reasons. One is your own personal epiphany, I suppose we, we, we could describe it as. The other one, which you describe as, you know, bringing ideas about cognitive dissonance and other ideas like that to an analysis of politics. Am I right then in saying that it's partly a function of what a lot of people have described as a shift from a traditional way of thinking about politics, that it's driven by economic self-interest, uh, ideas of who benefits or doesn't from certain certain policies, to something that's I suppose we often think of as much more nebulous, which is tied in with ideas of identity and tribe and those types of things. It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know to what extent we have just 
achieved a, a sort of a better understanding of processes that were really always going on in politics. You know, for as long as there's been electoral competition, candidates have tried to mobilise emotion and appeal to people's sense of identity. You know, you can go, if you look at the, you know, Kennedy or Nixon or any of the American presidents who's, who's won elections, they've done it by appealing to emotion. Um, so that's perennial. Uh, I do think what has slightly changed, well, a couple of things have changed more recently. I think from the end of the Cold War onwards, we moved out of an area where there really were two very distinct rival conceptions of how you would organise societies left and right. And essentially, I mean, people will dispute this, but broadly speaking, the the Marxist left alternative model totally collapsed and failed and left this sort of mulchy middle ground you know, area of politics, certainly in the UK, where it felt that people were really competing in quite a narrow terrain. Uh, and I think that sort of amplified the sense that a lot of people didn't really know what the traditional spectrum really represented or what the parties represented anymore. Uh, and so there was... Partly there, there was a gravitation towards more uh, identity-driven models of, of, of political allegiance. Uh, and then, of course, there's the internet, which really I have, think has just changed everything so dramatically uh, that and the, the way that seems to have, and social media in particular, seems to have sifted people uh, into silos or cohorts based on, on common experience but common identity uh, has so ripped up the old way of looking at the political spectrum uh, that it, the, anyway, I think those two things are inseparable. There's, there was a lot going on in what I just said, but that, that, that those to me seem to be the, the sort of the two big things: the ideological, sort of post Cold War ideological uh, grey zone, and the technology. I mean, the other thing I suppose that was ripped up is what was always a rather idealistic idea, and you know, perhaps never really existed, but was the, sort of the Enlightenment notion of the marketplace of ideas that uh, that that through debate and the contest of ideas and rhetoric and logic and dialogue dialectic and all those kinds of things, people could be persuaded to one idea or another on, on some kind of a rational basis. And that that seems also to have kind of certainly disappeared to, to, to some extent and that instead it does seem more productive, as, as you've done in, in many of the podcasts, to look at these things much more in terms of, of human psychology and cognitive dissonance, which is really about how we rationalise to ourselves internally um, our own behaviour, um, or maybe irrationally um, ar argue the point to ourselves, seems to become much more important, perhaps because of the internet? Well, yeah, I mean, going back a stage, I think that point about the old sort of rational model is so important. And, and what I didn't mention in the sort of context of the fragmentation of the old ideological way of looking at politics was, of course, the financial crisis. And what that did in, was really detonate the idea of homo economicus, the very rational economic model that said people will essentially have some understanding of their rational self-interest and pursue it. And that's how economics works. And I think that now that notion has now been pretty thoroughly debunked. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I understand that we now recognise precisely because uh, people have all sorts of emotional and psychological biases baked into the way that they behave. You, you can't really expect uh, people in, to make economic choices and by extension political choices uh, in that very cold rationalizing way and, and you mentioned cognitive dissonance i mean it's a it's a fantastically useful and important concept which is 
as you say, essentially that confronted with an existing belief, or so if you have an existing belief or a, a, a prior notion of the way things ought to be, and you are confronted with some piece of evidence that contradicts that, that creates an, an immense sense of discomfort and turmoil. And psychologically, people will do an awful lot to try and resolve that, uh, either by ignoring the evidence uh, or, or telling themselves stories that will somehow fit that evidence into their existing model. I mean, the, the classic example that isn't to do with politics, you know, is you like smoking and you're, you're addicted to nicotine and you want a cigarette. You know smoking is bad for you. So you need to construct a model that tells you that actually it's okay, which is that uh, smoking is, is, is a cool thing to do. It makes you look good and attractive or that you will, uh, it's okay because you know you're going to give up uh, at the end of the month. So now actually this is your special treat. You're allowed one more, all these things. And we do that in all the time. And we do it particularly in the political context when, for example, you have voted to leave the European Union, just grabbing an example out of nowhere. Uh, and it turns out that none of the things that were promised to you from that decision are available you could say, OK, well, it was a terrible mistake to leave the European Union. In practice, we don't see that happening. And why not? Because people were are cognitively very invested in that decision. They aligned their identities with it as leavers. Uh, it seemed an emotionally important part of who they were, uh, wanting uh, emancipation from the wicked Brussels project for, for the UK. Uh, and so they will find ways not to confront the uncomfortable evidence that maybe leaving the EU wasn't a good idea. And I say that as a remainder, I'm sure I'm doing the equivalent the other way in many respects. Yes, indeed. And there is that. All these things have, have mirror images of each other. We're not saying one side has, has the advantage over the other. In it. I mean, one thing about that that immediately strikes me is that the cognitive dissonance is actually the diametric opposite of the marketplace of ideas, because psychologists have shown that... Um, if you were to prove, and, and I'm not saying it's possible to do this, but if you were to prove to a Brexiteer that they'd made a terrible mistake in the way they voted in 2016, or indeed to a Trump voter, if you actually gave them hard proof in the same way as Woody Allen pulls out Marshall McLuhan from the movie queue in Annie Hall to definitively prove that he's right and the other guy's wrong, that will actually force them further down the rabbit hole of their support for Trump or their support for Brexit. It's the exact opposite of being persuaded by the, by the evidence. Certainly that can happen. You get this kind of blowback effect. Um, and uh, part of the, the reason that happens and it is and it's incredibly important to understand this. And this is one of the insights I think I've really taken from doing the podcast over the last year it is that when a political proposition fuses with your sense of identity to have that proposition opposed feels like an immensely personal attack uh, and it can be be kind of existentially threatening. And one of the ways that this was explained to me um, was actually in relation to US politics and gun control. Because if you're a European, most Europeans, American gun laws seem quite nutty. I mean, it's not that complicated a rational argument to say perhaps having the availability of lethal weapons in the supermarket is connected to the fact that lots of people get killed by guns. You know, it's not it's not a complicated proposition. Um, and yet it seems very, very difficult to win that argument in the US. Uh, and th the reason is because when it's bound up with the Constitution, as it is in the, I think it's the Second Amendment, there are people for whom the right to bear arms is part of their Republican in the in the sort of classic traditional political sense, their notion of their civic right uh, as a citizen of a free country. That's bound, fused to their sense of being and it becomes existentially challenging to them uh, when, as they would see it, unpatriotic Americans who don't like America 
who don't like their own country, who hate freedom, tell them that they should surrender that right. And and that happens. We're all doing that at some level with, uh, you know, Jonathan Haidt, a very good uh, psychologist who's looked at the, a lot of the tension between the way left and right look at politics. Uh, he talks about these, these sort of sacred values that get baked into our sense of politics. And if you... You know, in, as you gave the example of Brexit, but it'll happen, I'm sure, in all sorts of other areas. If what you're saying challenges something that has gone into the part of someone's political consciousness that is sacred to them, uh, you are going to drive them into a more radical, more extreme iteration of their view because they feel so threatened. I mean, my perception is that this is a phenomenon that's getting worse, uh, in my view. So the kind of the kind of um, um, reaction which you described to, to gun laws in the United States, you saw it applied to the whole question of mask wearing in the United States over the last while. And, and in many ways, the pandemic has been a fascinating moment for studying the intersection of of politics and psychology because it's thrown up a whole new set of, of challenges and experiments, I suppose, as well. We've never had so many behavioral economists on this uh, podcast as we've had in the in the last in the last 12 months or so. And everything seems to become enlisted to the argument from one tribe or another. I look, for example, at the way that uh, in media people react to the relative performance of various countries at various stages during the pandemic. So, you know, in this country, there was a lot of, not quite schadenfreude, but there was certainly a lot of finger pointing at the performance of Boris Johnson's government and Donald Trump's government last year. There's much less of that now. There's actually quite a lot of silence about their respective performances in vaccines. And equally, there's, uh, there was a support of the EU because this is a very EU-supporting country last year. And there's a kind of a shilly-shallying around the uh, indisputable fact that the EU has not performed very well in vaccine distribution so far. So everything just gets enlisted into the war as opposed to being looked at in any rational way, which I've, I personally find rather depressing. Yeah, and that's a function of, I mean, there are all sorts of different cognitive biases that, that that play into that you know there is um i mean confirmation bias is the, is the key one and this is well de- demonstrated now that people will uh essentially you know pre- presented with a whole array of of essentially facts evidence uh, they will select those to pay attention to and to absorb and to remember uh which support some existing prejudice uh, and i think I'll, I'll let me get this right but it's been very well described as if you, you 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 look at a new piece of information and at some unconscious level you interrogate it either in terms of do i have to believe this if it goes against your prejudice and can i believe this if it goes with your prejudice so you have this motivated reasoning where you come at what should be dispassionate information uh, with a motive to slot it into some nice pre-existing peg that you've already got in your thinking uh, and then the question becomes is this getting worse uh, to which i think there are two answers one is it's the human brain, so no. I mean, it probably is still evolving, but not that quickly. I don't think you know, Homo sapiens has substantially evolved over the last few years. Um, and but also yes, and again, you come back to the technology here because I, you know it's hard to completely demonstrate, but it seems to me uh, almost indisputable that a social media environment in which. Uh, all of the the sort of algorithms that drive the way information is is sorted, pushed to people, the way we sort their own information, choose our followers, block people who we don't like the sound of, are custom made to accelerate all these cognitive biases. We are, we've sort of built ourselves a sort of a, a huge centrifuge 
that will separate society out into purer, more refined tribal groups of people who very, very ferociously agree with each other. Uh, and, and that, to me, seems to be something that makes what we're living through now qualitatively different to a situation 30 years ago, where ultimately the information that we were trying to feed into our cognitive biases was coming from two or three channels and a few newspapers. When you say we've we've built ourselves, is it not a little bit more accurate to say certain people have built these systems that um, a certain form of aggressive American capitalism has built the, the social networks and the other platforms with which we're familiar uh, Another aggressive form of social totalitarianism has built a parallel system in China with, 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 with slightly different objectives. And we're just the lab rats in the middle of all this. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, well, I suppose when I say we built ourselves, I mean, we are involved at the level, you know, we, we choose who we follow and we choose what we retweet. Um, but then the word choose is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. And I mean, what you've raised there, I think, I mean, apart from the sort of macroeconomic and political question of whether this is a model, whether you know, how much capitalism is responsible for the growth of big five tech companies that control an in- enormous amount of our social and by extension, our political lives. That's one issue. But the other one, I think, is equally interesting, which is this philosophical question of how much choice are you actually exerting when you've decided to buy something on Amazon, but actually you were prompted to even be aware of that product by an algorithm that has followed, scraped all of your behaviour over a long period, knows exactly what you're likely to want to buy and has given you the opportunity to choose to buy this thing. What kind of choice really is that? Uh, And if the equivalent thing is going on in political choices, then that is a new kind of, I wouldn't say sort of totalitarian, but it's a new version of the draining away of individual agency in a political sphere that we're only just beginning to understand. And is, you know, I don't want to get too paranoid about it, but it certainly feels like it's happening faster than we can process it and think about governing or regulating our way around it. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's absolutely true. And when when when, when we when we try and understand these things and we look at what's happening to us, I mean, you said earlier quite correctly that human the human beings and the human brain phys- as physical entities haven't um, evolved over the last decades or centuries or indeed possibly millennia. But a huge amount of the way that human life has changed has been because of technology and tools of various sorts down the century. So these ones, I think it's fair to say, as other ones have done in the past, are are probably, choose, you know, some people would argue that they're changing the patterns and the way that our, our brains work on a day-to-day and minute-to-minute basis as well. Yeah, uh, certainly what I pick up from the reading of the cognitive psychology and speaking to guests on on the podcast is this constant tension and relationship between essentially the more primitive functions of the brain located in the amygdala, which is the sort of essentially the walnut sized core of your brain that does fight or flight response. Crudely speaking, it's the sort of caveman part that is trained to sniff out a saber-toothed tiger and run like hell. Uh, and the the sort of prefrontal cortex, the more evolved later bits of your brain that do um, higher level uh, cognition and sort of all the sort of metaconsciousness, the narration of your own consciousness, that is in, in the most wonderful and incredible aspect of the human experience will go on there. Um, it's uh, one of my guests on the podcast actually took me to task for, for this uh, the sort of expressing this duality in those terms and it's not that simple and there is a complex relationship between the two but 
very crudely speaking, there is a sort of wrestling match that goes on between the the most primal caveman response and uh, the more sophisticated judgment-based response that you have. And it appears that a lot of the technology that we use is is custom-made very deliberately to bypass the super sophisticated to the prefrontal cortex bits and tap into the more primitive bits precisely because those are your raw appetites uh you know that it's it's essentially the reason why you know it, it's easier to reach for a chocolate bar than some broccoli when you're really hungry because your caveman brain is going I need sugar and fat. Uh, and it shouts down the rational bit of your brain and goes, no, no, you must have the iron and the fibre. At that level, I don't think the technology is necessarily changing our brains, but we are running uphill into a hurricane if we're trying to exercise a very cool, calm, rational bit of our brain while also scrolling through Twitter, which is frantically trying to supercharge the other bit of our brain. I mean, am I over simplistic and just a um, boring old liberal centrist dad when I think hearing that that rational and objective equals good, um, emotional and instinctive equals bad, and that, for example, when you're talking about talking about what's happening on the internet, there, that's really the internet version there of what Joseph Goebbels and Lenny Riefenstahl were doing in the 1930s. They were looking to bypass rationality and tap into some potentially quite dangerous human instincts. It's certainly a tempting sort of heuristic way, you know, way of looking at it. Uh, and it's something that we've come up against a lot. Uh, and I was discussing this actually with our podcast producer just the other day, that it's something that we really haven't managed to get to the bottom of, which is this feeling that if going with the grain of your most primitive cognitive biases goes also with a set of, as you describe it, very atavistic behaviours, does that mean that a, a more liberal or progressive political mode is just is 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 running uphill as i say it's just it's just harder for as it were in quotes the good guys of the liberal rational school um and easier for populists and demagogues and nationalists and if so you know what do you do about it how do you organize politics uh, that you know that can compete uh, without sort of descending to that level uh, i'm a little bit wary of that distinction because there are also you know ways in which the the sort of ultra as it were rational mode uh is just as problematic uh you know i mean people you know, if you think about the atrocities you know, committed by stalin and stalinism that that came out of a pseudo scientific ultra rational view that marxism had solved history and could be applied in a very cold-hearted extremely rational way so you do have to remember that the whole human experience includes uh, a sort of the visceral and the emotional. That's part of what makes us empathise with other human beings. You know, otherwise, it, you know, it's apocryphal that Stalin said, you know, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. But there is the danger that the rational is also the utilitarian and the utilitarian, when applied to politics can be extremely callous. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And actually, when you think about it, a lot of what's driving current political trends at the moment is a, 
you know, a populist rebellion against a sort of a technocratic elite, which really made most of the decisions for 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 a number of decades. And those decisions, while supposedly rational, also tended to be in the interests of certain parts of societies and against the interests of another. So rationalism could be used as just as much of an excuse as anything else. Yeah, this is something I'm really grappling with at the moment, actually, uh, something I'm trying to write about, which is how do you distinguish between as it were, the legitimate grievance and appetite that leads people to vote for a populist or demagogic proposition. You know, you want to try and persuade these people or get on board with them and say, you know, the Trump voting is a classic example. I think probably almost everyone listening to this podcast thinks it wasn't a good idea that Donald Trump uh, was elected president of the United States. Uh, and so you want to reach out to the people who felt that he was making America great again and satisfying a very primal need in in them. And yet you don't want to do it in a way that legitimizes that aspect of the movement that also had neo-Nazis cheering along that was essentially racist and fascistic in so many ways. And you hit this line, which is empathy leads to engagement, engagement with people who are essentially trying to do that kind of project politics uh, is appeasement. That's you know you're 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 suddenly you're at Munich in 1938, and think well how how do I know when I've crossed that line if I'm trying to be empathetic with the voters but not endorsing the message of the candidate who also appeals better than me to those voters? And I I, I don't have the answer to that, but it strikes me as the fundamental challenge for liberal progressive politics in an age of identity politics and successful nationalism. There's also a question of you know what, you know what does make make America great again mean to different parts of the of the Trump of the Trump voting base. To some of them, it may mean um, marching and shouting Nazi slogans. To others, it may just mean getting a factory back in their town in Ohio or 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 whatever it might be. And and, and sort of speaking of that, one of the subjects that came up in one of your podcasts, which I found particularly interesting, was the whole question of nostalgia and nostalgia as a as a, as a political force. As well as a as well as an individual feeling, I suppose, and it came up a little bit as well. You did a podcast with my Irish Times colleague Fintan O'Toole, and that forms part of his critique of what the whole the whole Brexit process is is about as well. Um, I, I, one of the reasons I was quite interested in that was it seems to me that nostalgia works very differently in different places. Um, it may be oversimplistic just to describe Brexit as an exercise in imperial nostalgia, but I think there's some truth in it. The the phrase take back control implies a longing for the past to some extent. Um, nostalgia is not something we have in Ireland. So I wonder, is it peculiar to certain kinds of societies at certain points in in the cycle of history? It's interesting. I'm sure nostalgia, yeah, as you say, on a personal level, everyone has it. I mean, that the fascinating thing about that podcast was was that uh, Tim Viltrud, one of the professors we spoke to, talked about the therapeutic benefits of nostalgia. He has He's very positive about it and he wants to sort of rehabilitate it as an idea because you know, liberal commentators like me are constantly saying, oh, it's awful and it's just leading this to us into populism and nationalism. To your question, there is definitely an extent to which all nationalism, uh, nearly all nationalism, has some notion of... Uh, a golden age from the past that you are trying to draw from uh, as inspiration in building the future. Uh, and and But that is going to be, I suspect, much stronger when you, if you're like the UK or any other imperial state, and I think the US you could probably put in that category as well, um, uh, there was 
a clear memory of a time of greatness that has been lost. And, you know, I was a correspondent in the former Soviet Union uh, and I have friends who grew up in the Brezhnev era. They were not fans of the Soviet Union at all. Uh, and what they saw around them, particularly the people slightly older the generation, very quickly nostalgia for Soviet power. Uh, and, the, and Vladimir Putin has tapped into this very brilliantly. It's essentially in his, his is a neo-Soviet project because it gets to that nostalgia of when we were a superpower, everything was simpler. Uh, you sort of put on the rose tinted glasses and the world you know, of yesteryear seems to give you so much certainty in contrast with um, all the anxiety and the turmoil that you have today. But I wonder, and you could maybe answer this for me, because I don't know the Irish situation all that well, whether if uh, a, a sort of a, a national project has emerged in, in genuine emancipation from imperialism, as was the case in Ireland, as was not the case in the UK breaking free from the European Union. They sort of fantasised it as a sort of, uh, as Brussels, as the colonising power. But as Finton brilliantly describes, I mean, it's just a, a, an insane delusion, really. But in Ireland... It, yeah, it really was a liberation from from an imperial polity, uh, and part of that, I suppose, is reacting against the prejudice of the imperial power. It, frankly, racism in a lot of cases that uh, islands or or the other um, imperial possessions or colonised peoples were backward. Uh, and if you're pushing back against this idea that you're somehow this sort of benighted, primitive people who are being civilised by the imperial power. What you will probably want to assert is your modernity uh, and the sophistication of your new state and your politics and your moving forward. Uh, and I wonder whether that therefore conditions the nationalism and the national identity a little bit more, that you're striving towards a modern emancipation in reaction against basically people who for hundreds of years were telling you you were terribly backward and primitive. I think there's an element of truth in that. And I think that, you know, Irish political nationalism has always allied itself, at least in theory, with, you know, post-colonial and anti-colonialist movements in, in other parts of the world, in, in Africa and Asia. How, how accurate those comparisons are is probably open to debate. But it's also true that Ireland, like other um, nations that liberated themselves in the 19th and early 20th centuries, as part of that project, had a cultural project of reviving and rediscovering uh, the indigenous language, uh, literature, which was being kind of rolled over by, by, you know, by the imperial education system, you know, fighting back and using culture and using historic culture as a way to establish a vision of the nation state. And I suppose what, 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 what Finton says as well, I, I think, is that one of the paradoxes of this very often is that you have something which harks back to the past or uses very potent symbols from the past on what is essentially a revolutionary project. Um, and I think that is true. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And, and even more so, well, first of all, on that point about revolution, one of the things that I found amazing about that is you saw it with Brexit, uh, that it, it had almost a, a Bolshevik logic to it sometimes. You had people who were in a, what was called the Conservative Party, uh, and there was really nothing conservative about a project that involved sort of ripping up, not just the sort of protocols and normal ways in which politics are done, not just sort of uh, yanking British politics out of the, the, the foundations, you know, its institutional basis, at least for a generation, um, but also, you know, just, just relishing at the sound of breaking glass, you know, smashing everything to pieces, really. It was, and, and all on the basis that the, you know, that, uh, the ends would justify the means that we would get to this 
yeah, uh, the promised land um, of of uh, Britannia unchained, uh, global Britain free from the, the fetters. Uh, that is, you know, in, in sort of philosophical terms, this sort of teleological idea, you know, that you're, you're heading towards a destination, uh, riding the back of history to a horizon, has much more in common with radical Marxism intellectually than it does with traditional conservatism. There's almost nothing conservative about that at all as an approach, and yet it was being done by the Conservative Party. It's inter- it is interesting. That Can I move away from maybe from the, the visions of a glorious British future, which we'll, we'll see if they come to pass or, 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 or not, I have my doubts, to something perhaps a little bit more mundane, but something that has been, I think, been put into practice quite widely over the last while, which is the application of psychological theories to government through things like the nudge theory, which some people may be familiar with, a very influential book written by uh, written a, a good few years ago now, but which led to departments being established in Obama's White House and I think in Cameron's Downing Street as well. On the face of it, it seems quite uh, harmless that you just adjust structures of society, uh, a little bit like internet providers again in some ways, to do things like having people opt out rather than opt in to pension plans, therefore increasing the take-up. On the other hand, I've heard quite vociferous criticisms of this as being a sort of a a series of manipulative tolls, uh, manipulative tricks, basically paid to a population by people trying to trying to get things by sub- subterfuge. I don't know what, what what do you think of it. I have mixed feelings about it. That's interesting. I mean, I'm I'm inclined certainly towards the slightly more benign view of this, just because in the UK experience, the most sort of well-known application of nudge uh, is things like, um, you know, on energy bills telling you that other people on your street are saving this amount of being more efficient in this way. And, and that sort of encourages people to to want to be more efficient in their energy usage or, or as you say, or sort of the opting in rather than opting out. Or I think with organ donation was one um, way, you know, so when you get a new driver's license, do you become an organ donor as well at the same time? These sorts of things. Um, it's quite a big step from that to uh, a, a sort of Orwellian or Aldous Huxleyite uh, dystopian world where we're all being uh, steered against our will into uh, politics that we don't like. Uh, and as we were discussing earlier, I think when, when when what we're sort of up against with regard to Facebook, Amazon and Google uh, is this enormous structure where the, the sort of the nudge is happening almost every click, every use of the browser at some level shaping the environment with, in which we move, uh, it feels terribly clunky and analogue, the political version of it, that I, I I have to admit, I can't get too exercised about that. Yeah, fair, 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 fair enough. Something else that, that I get a bit exercised about, perhaps wrongly, is that a lot of this research naturally comes out of universities. Universities are more or less based in urban centres. The way our our politics shakes shakes out increasingly these days, um, I think both here in Ireland, but definitely in the United States and the United Kingdom, is that those are places that tend generally to be placed on one side of this ideological divide, the liberal and progressive one. And so when I see some of the research which comes out about which maps um, certain kinds of cognitive behavior there's a there's a thing called the ocean model ocan i'm not sure if you're familiar with it and it's supposed to measure people's openness on the one hand versus their 
lack of openness on the other. And Kelsa Prees, the progressives and the liberals are are more open in in some analyses of this than the other. And it kind of relates a little bit to a separate thing, which is which is undoubtedly true, which is that. Um, Political allegiance seems to map increasingly to education as well and to levels of education. And I suppose one of the reasons I just worry about this is because I worry about the way it's used in the end. It's basically used to a reductive, um, uh, those people over there are stupid and that's why they vote the way they, they do. And we're smart over here and open. And that's why we vote the way we do, which seems really problematic. Yeah, that, I agree. I mean, there's, there's two different things going on there. I mean, with regard to, certainly I think the the education divide one uh, there is certainly a solid empirical basis for the fact that a lot of divisions in whether it is Trump, non-Trump, uh, Brexit, non-Brexit, uh, yeah, there, there's age element, there's racial elements, but graduate, non-graduate is definitely a way of dividing that up that, that works quite tidily. Um, and as you say, the danger therefore is that all the university graduates look down their noses at the people who voted for the stupid thing saying, well, obviously they did the stupid thing because they haven't been to university, which is uh, both wrong and unhelpful. So it's doubly wrong. Um, What's interesting, again, something we've come across in the podcast, come up a couple of times, is that actually um, there are circumstances in which um, the liberal, progressive, university-educated segment precisely because of that confidence tinged almost with complacency about their own rational um, behaviour, are more susceptible to, for example, conspiracy theories um, than, than the rest of the population, precisely because they are relentlessly trying to join dots and thinking, you know, I, I can make sense of the world. I'm a clever person who can make sense of everything. Uh, and then just they're just one or two clicks away, therefore, from making sense of things in a way that is actually, a, you know, makes 5G masks responsible for COVID-19. I mean, that's an extreme example. But there is there is certainly an aspect of, of that happens. And also that in certainly in some tests of readiness to entertain the possibility that the other side is right, um, you know, obviously both sides are very polarised, but it is the liberal left side that comes out sometimes a little bit less tolerant than the right um, because their their tribal view at their end of the spectrum is so buttressed by confidence in its rational basis that they don't notice how far they've gone off into actually a silo that has excluded what might be perfectly valid rational reasons why they would be wrong. Um, a last question, if 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 you wouldn't mind, which is this process which we're discussing, or a lot of which has come up in the course of this discussion, which is about apparently an increasing division of um, citizens into two opposing self-identified camps, call them progressive and conservative or, or whatever you want. I mean that that has intensified over the last few years. That there are a number of factors for that, which we've which we've touched on. Do you see any prospect of that lessening, or do you think it's going to continue in the direction it's currently going? Oh, that's a really hard question, isn't it? I think uh, my my first impulse in response to that is to not write off left and right too early. I think what's what's what is interesting, for example, 
in at the moment in response to the pandemic, certainly in the UK, is you have a situation where the a Conservative Party that had whose economic policy was crudely speaking Thatcherite and of the classic Orthodox Conservative right has discovered borrowing and massive state intervention because they recognise that that essentially government could do things that the market wasn't going to do at a speed that it needed doing in an emergency. Uh, And so uh, that already we're seeing basically the only way to understand that is through what were actually fairly classical left-right approaches to to politics. Uh, And and that will happen a lot. Ultimately, so much of what causes i think uh anxiety the stresses we've we've talked about a little bit about in society are probably functions of inequality uh and okay uh, uh, let me let me start this thought again because i think there is an extent to which um the conservative politics has spent a long time trying to find ways to deal with the discontent caused by inequality other than just addressing the inequality so, you know, and, and identity politics is one way you do that. If you tell people that they're angry and they've lost their jobs and they're miserable because immigrants have come and taken their jobs or because uh, woke academics won't salute the flag or whatever it is, uh, you can get people angry and you can persuade them to vote for you. But what you don't ultimately do is make them better off relative to the people who they look at in envy. And so you keep cycling back to this question of inequality. Now, I know that probably makes me sound like I'm sort of I'm actually a Marxist. I'm not. Uh, But I am kind of a social Democrat at the end of the day, because I think you ultimately do just keep coming back to this question of when you've postponed people's gratification by appealing to the things that make them angry and they're still angry. At what point are you actually going to just rediscover egalitarian politics and say maybe that, that that's going to be some of the solution? Did that any of that make sense? That was a very rambling answer. It makes lots of sense and it's and, and it's optimistic. I wonder, you know, we, we can only know in the short term at the moment. I wonder, looking at the reaction of the Republican Party to his defeat in the presidential election, where it just essentially seems at a bit of a loss, and as a result, has just dialed down on on some pretty minor cultural issues, you know, like little known Dr. Seuss books and 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 things like that. Perhaps it's more true in the United Kingdom where um there are at least rhetorical um commitments to leveling up and to doing things in the north of England that probably should have been done decades ago. I certainly think the UK is much more of a European country than it it, it likes to think or than sort of, 52% of it likes to think. Um, And ultimately, there is probably a limit to the kind of tolerance of of an America, US style um, politics that would just resist any kind of socialization. Um, At the same time, and this is where I'm going to sound very pessimistic, um, I, I worry that the sort of social democratic consensus or the idea that there is intrinsic good in having a a slightly more level society, uh, which is going to require people at the top paying a little bit more to sustain people at the bottom. And and there is an intellectual argument for that, which is even the wealthy people have a better quality of life when they live in a more cohesive, happy society. uh, And therefore, it's actually it's an investment for them to pay a bit more tax because you've got basically a much nicer environment to live in. Um, 
I worry that actually that argument, people have been making it for a long time. It doesn't get a whole lot of traction because there are all sorts of other arguments that can say, well, I've worked hard for this money. I don't want to pay any taxes. It's mine. Um, which, going back to what we were saying earlier, appeals a little bit to a different part of your brain. But also, and this is a very pessimistic bit, um, they, that more egalitarian consensus was assembled out of the ashes of 1945. You know, that the democracy uh, and had come right had gone right into the abyss uh, and the the requirement to sort of you know, build equality and justice right into the absolute core of, of the way societies were organized uh, and that whole architecture that came out of the post-war environment was a sort of a huge mound of, of moral ethical capital the sort of never again ethos that we've sort of just been gradually depleting over the subsequent decades as the sort of memory fades. And then you get to the third decade of the 21st century and maybe there are just some lessons that we're going to have to learn the hard way. I mean, hopefully not as hard as 1939, um, but looking at what happened at the beginning of this year in the US uh, with the insurrection on the Capitol, you think, yeah, maybe there's it's some of the things that we thought of were absolutely intuitive uh, in western civilization because we'd sort of had this inoculation we've been vaccinated against the whole set of political ideas and modes um from buying that 39 to 45 experience maybe the vaccine didn't last forever and we're gonna have to learn again on that thought-provoking but really rather depressing note we shall uh... <laughs> that was really depressing do you want to just can I try to say something a little bit more optimistic about that all... yeah go ahead um, I accept that is a, a, a terribly bleak uh, way of looking at things. And I think one of the biases that I've identified in myself over the process of recording the podcast is this tendency to be attracted to catastrophe. Uh, and I think that is, in a way, something that political commentators are prone to do, because it's almost safer to predict the the worst and be wrong than to be all sort of panglossian and predict that everything's going to be fine and it would be be embarrassed when things turn out badly uh, there is this thing in meteorology they call the wet bias where weather forecasters will always slightly nudge up the prediction of rain because you know if, they, if you're told it's going to rain and it doesn't you're happy if you're told it's not going to rain you have a picnic and you get rained on you're really angry with the weather forecasters so i think as a political commentator i'm probably very guilty of wet bias in that respect uh, and actually the evidence generally uh, is that in all measures of health education well-being disease war you know you would if you could choose any time to be born in the history of human civilization you would definitely choose now over any other time in the past. And that is the fundamental fact of progress and the way we live. In that elegant and self-deprecating manner, you, manner you've managed to extricate yourself from ending this podcast on a, on a bum note, which we never like to do. So thanks very much to, to Raphael Baer for joining us there. Remember, Raphael's uh, podcast is called Politics on the Couch. It's available on all the major podcast platforms. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back in your feed very soon. But remember, you can mail us with your thoughts and your questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 